Welcome to our third episode of the Inner's Herald podcast. I'm Hugh Payne, the podcast producer at the Inner's Herald. Today we have Kyle, who wrote a fantastic short article, Six in the Six, for our, the current issue of the Inner's Herald. I'm looking forward to knowing more about your story ideas. Welcome, Kyle. Hello, podcast listeners at Inner's. Good to be here. Yeah. Hi, Kyle. Could you briefly introduce yourself? Hi. So I'm I'm a second year Rotman student at uh, as part of Innes College. I live at the Innes Residence, and I've been contributing to the Herald since I first got here in first year. And I'm really excited to be continuing to contribute, including my article for the first edition this year, uh, my six in the six article. Okay. Cool. So how long have you been here in Toronto or U of T? Uh, I moved downtown uh, to the Innes residence when I started first year, so about uh, just over a year at this point. Oh, it's now like a really long time, though. Yeah, only in second year, so still yeah, got cool. a long ways to go at this university. Definitely, you can explore more in that case. So, like, how does being a rad student help you with the navigation of downtown? Um. I mean, I love how central Innes is located for kind of everything, not just U of T, but also all of Toronto. And it's really what allowed me to easily get to all the places I talked about in my Six in the Six article, because it's so easy to get around and I love being in the city. So what's one word you would like to describe Toronto as and why? Um, I would say busy which like means a lot of things because it's a big city, it's busy, but it's also, it has like a lot of different things going on. So of course it's a very multicultural city. There's uh, lots of different kinds of people here. So it's also busy in the sense of there's so many different events and traditions and gatherings going on. So there's just a lot of different things going on at all the, at the same time. So whatever you're into, there's something in Toronto for you. We all know how the idea of the six to refer to Toronto came out to be. But what's your opinion of that? Do you like Toronto being called that? Uh, I think it's fun as like a colloquial nickname. I feel like it's it's not too reductive. It means different things depending on who you ask, because I know I've talked to people who, you know, it's mainly referring to the six boroughs, but it also could be something to do with our area codes, because both of them have six in it, 416 or 647. Um, so it's just kind of an identity. I don't really know, like other than the boroughs part, it doesn't really have much to do with our geography, but as a casual nickname, I think it's kind of increased the awareness of the city. So I'm fine with it. Yeah. That's very interesting. You kind of bring up the area code thing, right? Yeah. Okay. So what inspired you to write about the six attractions in Toronto? Well, of course. So, you know, me, I'm looking at the pitch list as soon as it comes out for the Innes Herald and I just saw this uh, one particular pitch and I was really interested in it because in my first year uh, when I was living in Toronto for the first time I made sure to always go out and see different places around town and I had also been to Toronto quite a few times because I'm from not that far from here so um, I really wanted to kind of write the piece, especially since it was the first edition of the year. There were a lot of people in residence and at Innes and on campus in general who were new to Toronto or uh, new to the country, maybe, you know, if you're an international student. So I figured it would be a great time specifically to write about this stuff, 
especially before, you know, exam season comes along, winter comes along, and then it's a little harder to get out there and kind of motivate yourself to see some stuff. So I was just really excited to share my favorite places in the city. Yes, definitely a really good navigation guide for first-year students, international students. And yeah, so you are also a really good uh, photographer. So not only this for this article, but your previous articles from last year, right? So how did you get into photography? Um, I don't know. It, it was kind of an accident, to be honest, because I was huge into audio and visual, which is why I love podcasts so much. Um, so I was really into making videos for a long time, kind of throughout high school and that sort of thing. So I had, you know, kind of a YouTube channel going on. And videos take a lot of work. They really, really do. Uh, there's a lot of prep, a lot of post-production work. So I had this giant camera and I'm like, wait a minute, this thing also takes photos. So why don't I head out there and see if I'm any good at photography as well? Because it's a lot simpler. You know, there's one frame instead of, you know, 30 or 60 every second from a technical level, but also from a post-production standpoint, you can edit photos, you can decide not to, you can do them at a later date. And so I just thought it was a much more casual way of like expressing a visual medium than video, which I was previously into. And of course I got really excited about it and especially last year in Toronto. So I've been kind of doing that ever since. Kyle Newcomb. I'm a contributor to the Innes Herald as well as a resident of Innes. I've been contributing since I came to Innes in first year. Every single issue I've had something to say about politics, sports, a little bit of technology, and now again going back to science and tech with the, my piece for the December issue 2022 on environmentalism, a return to pragmatism is what I called it. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to just maybe outline the key themes that you discussed in this article. Yeah, sure. Like, um, although I haven't really studied a lot of, you know, science in a dedicated way in school, I've always paid attention to the environmentalism movement. I'm a huge advocate for the welfare of the environment, mitigating climate change. I mean... In my personal view, I kind of take a little bit of a different approach to it than most people in terms of the politics of it, but I'm still a huge advocate for the environment and ways we can reduce our energy use and pollution and things like that. So for me, watching over the last couple of years, especially during COVID, when there was a lot of protesting going on for various different causes, it was almost a little bit of like disheartening to see the environmental movement, in my view, get a little off track with their messaging and their focus because, you know, there were a lot of kind of superfluous activities that were happening and it seemed like they were kind of losing the focus on the environment. I mean, I wrote about this in the piece just recently. There was the example of, you know, people throwing soup on an art piece in an art gallery in an apparent environmental protest and while raising awareness and lots of press coverage is important, I feel like the message was getting lost in a lot of the ways that the environmental movement was presenting themselves to the public. So 
I kind of am advocating in this piece for a return to the science, looking at empirical data, looking at research, looking at the science, and kind of taking a logical approach and a more kind of concrete approach to protecting the environment. And when you say you think about this politically differently than most other people, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, I don't want to generalize, of course. Like, as someone in poli-sci, I def- like, I'm taking a few different poli-sci courses. I'm planning to do a minor in it. But it's, it's quite clear to me, of course, that everyone lies on a spectrum. So I don't want to generalize too much. But the politics of the average environmentalist differ from mine and mostly the level of government involvement they want to see, whereas I'm more of a believer in, like, independent data analysis and things like that, a lot of other environmentalists seem to be more on the further government regulation side, which I am not, to an extent. Like, we still do agree on a lot of things, and, of course, paramount to that is our care for the environment and placing that at the top of our priority list. Um, But I just feel like in terms of the level of government involvement and the role of the free market, I feel like that's where I kind of differ from other environmentalists but i feel like we both have very valid points and we still agree on a lot of things so you're maybe a little more i guess you would say like you're more you're more libertarian in how you think we should approach environmental issues yes i actually do kind of identify myself as a libertarian politically which is kind of you know there's not many libertarians out there yeah i mean they did just cause a runoff in georgia but that's neither here nor there (laughs) But yeah, that's kind of where I lie when it comes to this sort of thing. Now, when it comes to environmental movement, I'm a little more liberal than kind of the typical libertarian view where it's like, yeah, you know, maybe some common sense regulation is a good idea. But I just I don't see government being super involved as an efficient or effective way of like definitively ending the climate crisis. I feel like there's a certain role that the government should play, but also the private sector so when you say that um you prefer a more private sector approach what sort of mechanisms do you think could be used to achieve that yeah so when it comes to the private sector you've got a lot of things going on right now that are already kind of in place but are unfortunately fundamentally broken in my opinion like you've got cap and trade on carbon which is a bit sketchy like carbon credits themselves are not accredited very well at all there's been cases i think in new york state where it was like a forest preservation group sold carbon credits for a forest that was already preserved yeah like I it was, that it, was well. it was nothing like new that they were doing which is kind of the whole point of cap and trade is it's like but i feel like the private sector i feel like the government should kind of have a role in setting kind of the boundary limits, whereas like, hey, you can't emit uh, after like so many tons of carbon every year. And then what that does is it really kickstarts the innovation in the private sector where they go, because I think we can all agree that the private sector moves faster than government. And with all of the headlines, it's like, oh, the environment, oh my goodness, it's such in a dire strait by 2030, by 2040, by 2050, there's gonna be all these calamities. If that's true, which I, I don't, I take a more conservative view. I think the media has been predicting the end of the world since 1990 when it comes to this sort of thing. So I think there's a little bit of sensationalism out there. 
But I feel like in terms of the speed, in terms of innovation, I feel like that's where the private sector comes in. So the government can say, hey, the environment's important to us. Don't, you know, don't cut down these trees and don't um, emit more than this much and don't pollute this river. And they can say things like that. And then the companies placed with these new constraints have to figure out how to solve that problem, which I think companies are historically very good at doing. So I feel like that's kind of where the innovation cycle starts happening. And then in terms of investment, if there's money to be made in environmental technologies, which there already is to an extent today, then there's going to be a lot of investment in that area. Do you worry that in maybe places like the United States or countries where there's a large farming industry, which is damaging to the environment, like maybe Brazil or Indonesia, the government is not able to put those limits on the private sector? Yeah, that's a really good point because even in Canada, we see it. Like there are some really, really strong lobbies out there. I mean, the oil lobby in itself is a global monolith, so it's really hard to get away from them. You've got place, things in Canada like the dairy lobby in Canada is probably one of the strongest in the country, in the world, in terms of agriculture. The Brazil meat lobby is on a complete other level. If you want to like go down a rabbit hole on the internet, just search up JBS and like see what pops up. Had like a third of Brazilian senators on their payroll at one point, I believe. It was something crazy like that. And in Brazil, the number one reason for deforestation of the Amazon is for grazing land for cows. So I feel like that's another shortfall of the government where it is kind of, you know, it's unable to kind of set limits because there's so much influence from the companies. And it's kind of a, another problem where one of the reasons to solve that is antitrust. If you have a monopoly, if you have an oil monopoly, if you have an agricultural monopoly, you really need to break it up. But then again, the government doesn't have the willpower to do that because of the lobbyists. So it is kind of a case of the private sector working in its interests. And today, the environmental section, like the environmental technologies sector is a lot smaller than the ag business and the dairy and kind of the oil sector. So I feel like over time that will balance out because, you know, to a certain extent, like I don't believe in the efficient market hypothesis at all. We're seeing it right now with absolutely overinflated everything in terms of equities prices and stuff like that come crashing down. But I feel like it will balance out in time because investors are going to see that, hey, even if oil companies have made money hand over fist this year, they can't do that in perpetuity because there's going to be risks to even their own infrastructure like if you have an oil drilling platform out in the gulf of mexico and the oil that you're drilling is helping cause more severe hurricanes it's kind of like a self-destruction cycle and i think that will be realized more clearly soon and kind of investment will hopefully cycle out of that sort of industry and then your hope is when that happens the reduction in size of those lobbies will allow governments to put adequate restrictions on those industries. Yeah, and that's the thing. A lot of people don't realize this. The environmental lobby is already massive, and a lot of what it does is good, and a lot of it is less so, but it is already very big. Um, you know, 
for a specific example, like the in the U.S., might have heard about the Inflation Reduction Act, huge piece of democratic legislation uh, that was passed last or this year, I believe, s- sometime in 2022. Recently, yeah, within the last within Biden's term, but not commenting specifically on my thoughts on the legislation. It was called the Inflation Reduction Act because inflation is very high. You need to reduce it. Yada yada makes sense. But most of the bill is about environmental subsidies and promoting electric vehicles and um, promoting solar panels. So I feel like the environmental lobby already has a lot of power in terms of getting their interests into government legislation. It is, as with anything governments do, it's a little bloated around the edges. Like, yeah, it probably could have done been done more efficiently, but it was a huge windfall for environmental groups. But I think... The environmental lobby, similar to the oil lobby, only works with certain politicians. So as balances of power change in different governments, like there was just an election in Brazil recently, and uh, Lula was elected, and so he's more focused on Amazon preservation than ag business. So it kind of, whichever lobby has more power is oftentimes determined by whichever politician or political group they're allied with whether they're in power or not so that's another factor of it that changes quite often right we're seeing it swing a little bit right now in the environmental ally direction are there any groups or companies that you might want to keep an eye on over the next maybe decade just to uh, that might be pushing the boundaries or maybe leaders in this market movement yeah I mean, I don't have a ton of specific companies. Um, I feel like a lot of the ones 10 years from now... Um, they don't exist today. Well, yeah. they, they do, but they're like a private startup. They have very few investors. Like, you know, Joe Schmo out on the street doesn't really know about them yet. But in terms of like general areas for opportunity, I think there's a lot going on in battery chemistry and battery density. So companies working on that, including Tesla. I'm not a huge Tesla fan. Um, you're, you're talking a lot about, yeah, about how energy credits are poor earlier. If you, yeah, and, if you feel that way, I'm not surprised you're not a Tesla yeah, fan. And I also feel like electric cars just are not the answer. They right. have all the same downsides as other cars, but they like make less noise and the emissions are moved from the road to the battery factory. So I feel like overall they're still better, but I feel like you know, for example, mass transit really is more of an answer where it's like electric trains versus like everyone having their own climate controlled 3000 pound box is just inherently inefficient. So the whole electric car model is more saving the car industry than it's saving the environment. Right. Is the way I view it. But what they're doing, uh, Tesla works in collaboration with Panasonic on batteries and they've got some really great kind of density and chemistry stuff going on. Graphene batteries are potentially revolutionary when they kind of get to scale. And in terms of other things like biomanufacturing, just this week there was lab-grown chicken that was approved by the FDA in the U.S. Um, and that's you know a really interesting thing: less CO2 emissions, lot less land use. We talked about you know cattle take up and other livestock take up huge swaths of land that's often you know, forest before it's kind of raised for livestock use. And then the interesting thing to me 
about land use for meat, which people don't often realize, is that it's so inefficient to yeah. raise, for example, uh, a thousand calories of beef. It if is. you compare that to the land used to raise a thousand calories of grain, it's not even m- most of it isn't even grazing. It's yeah. the food that you need to grow that cow uses maybe ten times as much space as would be needed to just make that food into the make that use that land to grow the food itself. Yeah, it's like it is crazy, and if you look at for example, the U.S. states like Iowa produce a ton of corn, but like Americans don't consume that much corn. Most of it goes to livestock feed and ethanol for gasoline. So even things that you don't con- typically conflate with large, expansive land use really do take up a lot of our prime agricultural land. Mm-hmm. So you earlier uh, talked about as well how most of the environmental um, interest groups or most environmental activists sort of moved away from that um, or are, are differently opinionated than you. Why do you think that shift occurred? Uh, I mean, I feel like a lot of it's understandable. A lot of people who are kind of looking at environmental protection are naturally kind of focused on kind of equity politics and social justice because they see what's happening to the climate and the animals and the plants and the trees and they say that's unjust we're just bulldozing them right over for our benefit and i absolutely agree and then people in that similar vein are also working on a lot of other important issues when it comes to justice and other things which are great great issues and they really need to be focused on as well but i feel like if you work on all of them at once, you're kind of the jack of all trades, but the master of none, where mm-hmm. I feel like for all of these large issues, we really need kind of a focused effort from a really passionate group of activists and things like that. And I feel like the messaging gets lost when you try and kind of protest or raise awareness about too many things at once. So it's not to limit the importance of any of these issues. They're all extremely important. I, and I wholeheartedly support activism in this area and all of these areas that I mentioned. But if you're not focused on one or just a couple of them, I feel like it's a little bit difficult to have as meaningful an impact as you could if you were more focused on one specific thing. Some people tend to think that climate change is maybe an existential threat to humanity. Um, do you tend to be in that camp or how do you how do you rank it in that category? I think it is existential. I think as I mentioned earlier, there is a lot of media alarmism and sensationalism to drive clicks on the internet. I think that's just a function of the media business. You know, in even in the nineties, like part of Y two K as well was like the world's gonna end, environmental catastrophe. They've pre- been predicting it for a while. That's not to say none of the alarming predictions are fault like none of them are true because some of them definitely are we've seen a lot of the effects of climate change i feel like it is existential i feel like some of it is though locally existential so for it's kind of hard to get people who live in a place that isn't affected as by climate change like here like here toronto we are very perfectly situated um to be we're high up we have lots of water we're pretty insulated from storms that come in from the Atlantic coast. 
I think the only main issue we face as a in, as Canadians is just smaller snowing seasons. This will just damage our tourism industry. Yeah, and Canada as a whole is warming at about twice the average rate. Mm-hmm. Like our Arctic regions, the Hudson's Bay region, losing lots of sea ice, things like that. The Northwest Passage is now open in the summer. It's being used for shipping routes. So, but I feel like a lot of the citizenry, which is, of course, clustered near the U.S. border, not in the Arctic where you can, like, survey the sea ice every winter. I mean, I feel like we're a little more insulated when it comes to that sort of thing. Now, people on the coasts will obviously be more susceptible to sea level rise and things like that. But it is kind of more of a locally existential problem. It's existential for everybody, but not everybody can kind of see it on a day-to-day basis, how important it is. And that's why I think protesting and media coverage and all that is so important for this issue. People need to be talking about it. People need to be thinking about it. But it needs to be focused on the specific environmental factors and what's going on with climate change instead of, you know, kind of having too many things together at once and potentially confusing or people are kind of making, you know, your movement seem less sophisticated to some. That's not a good look either. So... It is existential for everybody. Not everybody kind of realizes that a lot just because of where they're situated in the world. Um, But yeah, it's definitely a very high priority issue for me and a lot of people, and it should be for everybody in my opinion. Right. And you were saying earlier, like it's an existential threat to some places. We don't think about it in that way here. But if you go to uh, lots of places in Southeast Asia or even, you know, in Florida, (laughs) it's like they have... I think, you know, over the course of the next 10 years, it's going to be extremely expensive to live in those places and potentially causing refugee crises. It is. I mean, even if you look to your point, Florida, you've got lots of hurricanes, lots of flooding. The highest point in the entire state is like 350 feet above sea level. So it's not a good look. In California, you've got wildfires, a lot of them. And in a lot of these places, to your point, it is very expensive because in a lot of places in Florida, you've got no, like, you're basically priced out of the insurance market. The insurance market is not functional in these places because the costs are so high and the likelihood of disaster is so much higher than it used to be. A lot of places in California, you cannot buy fire insurance for your home. You can't do it. You can't buy home insurance because the insurance companies take one look and they go, we're not touching that. Mm -hmm. The risk is too high. There's too many payouts that we're likely to give. Same thing happens in Florida with hurricane insurance. Um, We're just seeing the aftermath of some of the hurricanes this season, which started way earlier than normal. And it's very possible that most of the South Florida insurance industry will just be wiped out due to this, which is it's great that homeowners who had insurance are getting payouts and that's important part of the restructuring process but it's becoming very costly and very expensive to deal with these effects and i think that's going to be part of what raises awareness of kind of the threat of these extreme weather events and other climate change effects as well right and going back a little more to the solutions you talk a lot in the article about how you know, you feel like we should kind of return to the more hard uh, data analysis and more understand and come to the realization as a society that nuclear, in a lot of ways, is really is the way to go in solving this issue. But it seems like a lot of people in our generation don't 
agree and a lot of people have a lot of there's a lot of stigma towards nuclear energy why do you think that this feeling among the public has developed i mean there is a lot of stigma and there are valid reasons for it i'm not denying they exist i mean when hbo released their chernobyl miniseries like who wasn't terrified like i'll admit it it's a really kind of scary technology it's complicated it's not easy to understand just from like you know a, a top-down level so you really need to kind of take the time to learn about it and compare it to alternatives and see what's going on and a lot of people just you know for whatever reason they kind of dismissed it early on and a lot of it's understandable a lot of it really is where the problem arises is when you've got highly educated powerful environmental activists and lobbyists when those people are dismissing nuclear then it's a lot more of a confusing case and a lot more of a harmful case because nuclear just to give a quick rundown in terms of net carbon emissions from all related activity it's like one third of that of solar because solar panels require a lot of heavy mining intensive minerals and it's about the same as wind and wind is an intermittent power source just like solar there's not wind 24 7 there's not sun 24 7 so nuclear kind of comes in as this kind of low carbon intensity alternative there are of course downsides and people are quick to point them out when you bring up nuclear in a casual conversation about energy where it's like there's radioactive waste which there is there's oftentimes quite a bit of it lying around but in terms of density of energy, it's quite good. In terms of carbon emissions per kilowatt, it's quite good. And in terms of kind of the development of it over time as a like a safer approach and things like that, it's like, you know, after Chernobyl, after Hiroshima, it's like nobody's going to make those mistakes again, we hope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the problem is nuclear power plants need to be located next to a huge body of water because they do use a ton of water, and that's one of the downsides. You need to cool some of the spent uranium fuel. You need to cool kind of the reactor module, and water is used to do that. But it's not like there's no innovation going on in the space. There's a lot more safety mechanisms, a lot more redundancy being built in, and even more efficiency as well with different kinds of fuel being used. And I feel like the stigma just comes from you know, a casual knowledge of history. It's like nuclear bombs were used in World War II. Nuclear tests were very damaging to the environment. That was from a weaponry perspective. And then from an energy perspective, we had two very notable disasters in Chernobyl and Hiroshima. Or Fukushima. Fukushima. And Three Mile bad. Island as well. And Three Mile Island as well. That was another big one. And so I feel like the media covers a lot of negative events like that very extensively, as they should. They're humanitarian disasters they need to be prevented in the future and they need to be dealt with after they happen but it's kind of uh it's a bit more complicated than sun hits panel wind blows turbine so i feel like it's a little more complex of an energy source not saying not anyone can pick it up i mean it's once you kind of research it a little bit it becomes a lot easier to understand I'm in business and I've still spent time learning about nuclear energy, seeing what the benefits are, seeing what the drawbacks are. So it's just kind of a factor of a, a brief knowledge of history plus kind of a nuclear. Isn't that like bad? Mm -hmm. It just comes from that. And then there are, like I said, the environmental lobby is very powerful, but 
the nuclear lobby really isn't. So you might yeah. get more lobbyists from solar and wind than you would for nuclear power because as a private private uh, environmental startups are definitely investing in solar and wind, but they're not really investing in nuclear because as a, as a private business, it's very hard to be involved in nuclear energy. There are some working on fusion instead of fission, but it's kind of a long play. So I feel like that think, is also a part of it. I think by the time... If we just wait for fusion energy, the climate crisis will already be too severe by the time it's invented. I think a lot of people feel that way. I definitely feel that way, not because I don't believe fusion is possible. I mean, it's a, it's insanely cool technology if we can actually get it to work. And it kind of plays into the philosophy of the way to solve the climate crisis isn't like, hey, turn off all your lights. Mm -hmm. It's like make energy carbon neutral and abundant because then the innovation can keep going and we don't have to like turn off factories and like slow down kind of innovation and knowledge growth in that way so energy abundance is definitely part of the answer so we basically need low carbon high output energy sources and i feel like nuclear it's definitely not a long-term solution almost anyone can acknowledge that because like where are you going to put all the uranium it's just from a practical perspective. But in terms of its benefits over coal, which is used extensively, I don't I don't think a lot of people realize how much of the world is powered by coal still. Um, and then you've got even natural gas. I went over it's, it often has lower total net emissions than solar. So I think as a bridge fuel, I think it's an essential component. So over the next few decades, which is usually the typical life of a nuclear power plant, I feel like it's a really great, use of kind of energy investment dollars to put some nuclear online and maybe take some other sources offline so it's it won't get us to zero emissions from energy but it'll reduce it by a lot and that's kind of it's not going to be an immediate fix nothing is but we just kind of need to work on it in the short term right and you were talking earlier about how it's there's not as much buy-in from startups to nuclear energy I think a part of that is it's hard, It's obviously one nuclear reactor is a large thing to build. It's extremely expensive, and it takes a long time before you can start producing energy with a nuclear reactor. We're seeing some of that change with more development into uh, small modular reactors in Canada and that sort of thing. But for the time being, the mainstream is still more large-scale nuclear production. So how do you see energy companies shifting towards nuclear in a major way? What, what, what corporations will have to step in to fill that gap? Um, before I answer that, I really want to point out small modular reactors are awesome. Mm -hmm. They're very cool. That is great. And I feel like innovation in nuclear really is constrained because if, like, if you look at kind of nuclear was first used in weaponry the manhattan project was insanely expensive like, like there's no company that could have <laughs> kick-started that but mm. now that it's in the public and private sphere there is a lot of innovation going on but again it's like there's a lot of innovation going on in solar and wind and batteries and that sort of thing so it's it's kind of all jostling for position in terms of investment dollars and attention i feel like what really will happen is when energy companies 
and when like public electricity providers and the companies that manage the grids I mean I think eventually they're just going to take a look around and either have an emission restraint placed on them by somebody or there's going to be public pressure or they're infrastructure is going to be under threat from the climate change that dirty fuels are causing and they'll kind of look around and go okay we need to change the energy mix and this is something i think i briefly mentioned in my piece is it's it's kind of all or nothing for a lot of people but i feel like a lot of us miss kind of the energy mix so grids have lots of different power sources from lots of different places and they all have their pros and cons and something like solar actually could be very beneficial because most electricity use is during the day. So you bring some solar online during the day, you turn it off at night because there's no sun, and you've got more energy use during the day. And things like natural gas are actually really great in terms of speed. You can get a natural gas power plant online very quickly, whereas things like nuclear take a lot longer to start up for obvious reasons. You're handling handling dangerous material things like that so i feel like nuclear isn't like we're not switching to all nuclear anytime soon we're not switching to all fusion anytime soon but in the short term i think if we creep more nuclear into our energy mix because it's a reliable 24 7 power source which can take over from things like coal take over from things like natural gas while still maintaining a little bit of that here and there um, because it is strategic in what it's used for in terms of speed to get online and ability to kind of smooth over peak demand periods. But I feel like at a base level, I feel like nuclear should become more part of that base level of our grid where it's like the reliable stuff we always need, we're always using it. And then we kind of relegate some of the more nimble fuels, some of the less reliable ones, some of the dirtier ones to kind of those peak periods and to kind of just make the grid reliable while keeping the most reliable ones at the base level, which in my mind really is nuclear. Mm -hmm. And we talked a little bit earlier about small modular reactors. Are there any other developments or new technologies in the nuclear uh, kind of industry that you are interested in going forward? Um, I mean, I, I'm not super aware of specific kind of science about it or kind of new things, but something that is happening is a lot of governments and power agencies around the world are looking to extend the life of their nuclear plants because a lot of them were built kind of in the 80s, the 70s, the kind of heyday of that sort of thing. And a lot of them are scheduled to go offline in the next five, ten years around the world. This is in places like Germany. This is even in places in Ontario. The Pickering nuclear plant is, I believe, scheduled to close sometime in the next three or four years, 2025, 2026, and the government is looking to extend the life of it because, as we've talked about, it's a reliable fuel source. It's low carbon compared to a lot of other options. So I feel like building nuclear reactors that are longer lasting and more reliable and more redundant and as well as building them where they can provide more energy and make up more of the grid i feel like that's the main innovation going on right now not really innovation but sort of a refurbishment of old infrastructure getting up getting it up to new standards 
and kind of continuing to use nuclear as a reliable power source in the grid system is kind of the biggest thing going on right now because it really all kick-started when the Ukraine war began and it was kind of a, a crazy point in global energy markets. Natural gas, oil prices were up and down, this and that way. And people realized, oh my goodness, fossil fuels, not only are they bad for the climate, they're unreliably producible from these countries. Conflict has a huge role to play in oil, as we've seen over the decades in places like the Middle East as well. So just ask the U.S. military what their motives are in almost any of their conflicts. I'm sure oil's in there mm -hmm. somewhere. And so people went, hold on, you know, Canada has lots of uranium deposits at home. Other countries do as well. And I feel like it's kind of a domestic energy source that's a lot more reliable and a lot more or a lot less susceptible to geopolitical instability and conflict. And I feel like the refurbishment of reactors and the re-upping of investment in nuclear is kind of the biggest change that the space is seeing today. Yeah, that's interesting. I think one of the projects that I'm most interested in in the modern day, although this is not really much related to the production of energy, but there's a lot of different projects going on about how to dispose of nuclear waste. Because currently, uh, there really is no solution for how to deal with, uh, permanently deal with spent nuclear materials. Um, a lot of people, I think there's a project maybe in Finland that's going on where they're just planning on burying it miles below the earth. Yeah. And then coming up with some way to indicate, you know, hundreds of thousands of years from now where they're still possibly these materials are still radioactive, could still be used to create weapons, indicating that these are dangerous, deadly materials. Um, it's interesting seeing different proposals for how to signal that um, to civilizations which, you know, don't speak languages that we do now, possibly won't even remember us at all, and still trying to figure out ways to warn them about the destructive potential of these this, you know these rocks we've buried miles beneath the earth in like the bedrock of Siberia or you know northern Finland or something like that. Yeah. The project in Finland really is interesting because it it really is the first serious attempt at permanent nuclear waste storage. That's one of the major downsides of nuclear that is pretty easy to acknowledge and a lot of not a lot of people know this but 100% of nuclear waste in the world is in temporary storage. Right. That we know of. There Maybe is no permanent storage. There's none. Maybe there's like some secret government project we don't know about that's classified but for or, all practical practical I think purposes maybe the u.s would probably say that maybe that's what area 51 into, is for uh, like i don't know well i was gonna say <laughs> what they used to do during the iraq war with depleted uranium is they would because it's kind of interesting actually like a different um uh armor piercing rounds like most metals when you fire it into a uh, like if you fire it into a sheet of steel it ablates, but something about this uh, spent uranium is it actually sharpens, and it's very, very good at um, puncturing armor. Hmm. So they used depleted uranium during the Iraq War as uh, air-to-ground weaponry from for like thunder or like 
plains. That's crazy. So now there's fields all over Iraq that are irradiated. I'm sure the U.S. would say that's a permanent solution. But apart <laughs> from that, yeah. nothing exists. There's also a ton of nuclear waste at the bottom of the ocean. Right. Like, there's literally some off the coast of California. Like, that's not good. So that probably will need to get dealt with as well. But the project in Finland is super interesting. I feel like there was a lot of debate and controversy over, like, how do we label this? Because to your point, who knows what, you know, civilizations hundreds of thousands of years from now will, like, what languages will they speak? What imagery will they understand? Because who knows? Humans have only been around for about that long, and nuclear fuel is dangerous for a very long time, which is, Mm -hmm. again, one of the major drawbacks of the energy source. But a lot of people were saying, and I was I was kind of intrigued by this argument, where it's like, well, why don't you just label it at all? Right. The, the probability of someone randomly digging down a kilometer into the earth in northern Finland is almost zero. Or just bury it deep enough in the bedrock yeah. that the, the chan- like by the time the natural geological processes of the earth dig it up, it'll be... Yeah, it'll, 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 be, have it'll be done because, you know, plate tectonics take millions, hundreds yeah. of millions of years. And by then the fuel would be done for with its radioactive properties. But I feel like they kind of defeated the purpose of being able to not label it by disclosing its location publicly. It's like, hey, look at this, like, cool thing we're building. Oh, yeah. Um, maybe we shouldn't have told you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that kind of made a little bit of sense to me where it's like, ah. If you didn't want people to go p- poking around there later, maybe you shouldn't have made it so public. But it is an international project, like multiple countries. Like Finland doesn't have that much nuclear yeah. waste, so it's obviously a collaboration effort. So I think there's going to be further innovation in this area, and I think there's going to be a lot of research into safer ways to store spent nuclear waste. Mm-hmm. I got to say, it was uh, great having on the show. I think we're going to wrap it up now. Personally... As I'm a, I don't know if you remember, we talked before, I'm, a, I'm planning on going into a physics specialist and being someone who's, you know, interested in physics, politics, I think this is a really interesting subject. Uh, you know, it's a very, it's a big nexus of a lot of issues that I'm very interested in. So I, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you about it. And this was a really great talk. I would love to have you on the show again if you ever write up any more spicy articles for us. So Yeah, for yeah. sure. I mean, like, I'm just, as you've probably noticed, if you've seen a few of my different Herald pieces, I write about a lot of different things, and I'm just interested in, you know, very many things. I'm like, that's why I take a lot of different classes in school. I'm kind of all over the place. But, yeah, it was great to talk about it. I mean, I think this is a really important issue, you know, if I had to rate it. It's like probably more important than some of the sports articles I've written. Those were a little more fun, a little more lighthearted. But I feel like, yeah, bringing attention to this issue is super important. And that's why I wrote the piece. That's why I came on this podcast. And yeah, that's why I had a lot of fun talking to you about it. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Wanting to be on the podcast? The Inner's Herald podcast is looking for passionate contributors who are eager to share their stories at UFT. Sign up with the link below to meet our podcast team and let your voice be heard in our monthly episode. We are always waiting for our next podcast star.